the Scholars in Iron podcast. There are changes that happen immediately. And to see the amount, just the sheer volume of immediate changes that happened to me within the last year leads me to question whether I was, <laughs> whether I was even, whether I could even count myself among the saved, whether I believed truly to that point. Good morning, and welcome to the Scholars in Iron podcast. I'm your host, Joe, coming to you from outside the nation's capital, right here in the DMV. The objective of Scholars in Iron is very straightforward. It's to associate strength training with intellectual endeavors. On the show, we'll examine the connection between capitalism and CrossFit, philosophy and powerlifting, all to raise some hell and even a few questions. By the end of each episode, we'll get one rep closer to living the phrase, civilize the mind, but make savage the body. Now come on, let's lift. What does it mean to have faith under the bar? And how does a religion like Christianity relate to a sport where risking it all means injury, if not certain death? I recently had a conversation with Swede Burns, elite powerlifter, father of the fifth set methodology, published poet, and devout Christian. He spoke to me about his narrative of coming to Christ and what that means for him. We managed to get into the weeds with the topic of allegory in the Bible, how to read it, to the performativity of the angry lifter on social media. In fact, we got into so many discussions we decided to make it into a two-part series I like to call Iron Sharpens Iron. So let's get into it. Swede, great to have you on the show again. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us more about your faith and its particular importance for you. I've been a Christian my entire life. I've studied scripture my entire life. I've always been compelled. I've always felt pulled to study scripture. I knew there was something more than just the words there. I was able to grasp that there was some deeper meaning that was much more profound to all of these things, but I just wasn't able to get my head completely around it in a way that I could accept. To give you a little background, I would say I was probably a child when I was first introduced to the idea of Jesus Christ and faith, Christianity in general. And I had, you know, like most kids, a very rudimentary understanding of what that meant, but I understood the basics. And as is often the case, when you present a series of rules that are life or death rules to children without nuance, you know, it's hard for the child to really grasp exactly what's going on and understand what to do. And so I had that issue myself. I've always prayed. I've always believed in uh, in God. I've always believed in the Christian God. There were times when I felt myself to be at odds with God, which was my own misunderstanding. And uh, even if you read Clues About Ghosts, the original poetry book, is rife with scriptural allusions, allusions to Christian scripture. Uh, for example, you, my pillar of salt, you, <laughs> you know, to refer to a former or past love as a pillar of salt. In that case, I was referring to the story of Lot and his family and his, his wife looking back and being turned to a pillar of salt. And that's representational of a deeper meaning within that poem, but obviously a much deeper meaning within that story of looking back, you know, of questioning the decision 
and I know I know you're a Catholic. I'm gonna have to paraphrase because I don't know exactly word for word, but I'm gonna paraphrase a quote from Pope Benedict. He said that most sin, most evil, originates in indecision and concern for what other people will think. That struck me as extremely profound because indecision is what leads us usually to be condemned in one way or another. You know, we know the right thing, but we try to convince ourselves otherwise. Or we don't have the faith to believe the right thing. We question and look back and we bring Egyptians with us, which I think you probably understand what I mean by that. That's a reference to the idea of the Israelites being freed from Egypt. And when they left, they brought some Egyptians with them. And the scripture talks about rabble that was among them. And that was the Egyptians because I think the message there is that when you turn away from something, you can't bring part of it with you. You know, you have to let go of it. That's what it means to repent, to turn away from it and not turn back toward it. So that's, that's an example of that, that illusion. But yeah, I mean, my entire life, scripture has been a part of my entire life. And even when I rebelled against it, I was in pain. You know, these were times when I didn't understand and, I, and it allows me to empathize with others that are in that position as well. You know, I, I, I know how it feels. I don't have to imagine. I know how it feels to question and to feel that your needs aren't being met and promises aren't being kept and so forth. That took me, that took me a long time to understand and to eventually accept the reasons behind that. But when I was in prison, believe it or not, I was a, <laughs> I was a religious leader in my prison. I held Bible studies and people referred to me as Christian sweet. And, Something I've always been, you know, I took I took mail order courses also on scripture. Uh, so something that's always been very important to me and I always felt drawn toward. But I didn't allow myself to accept it as my identity because I couldn't understand it. You know, and I, how could I embrace something fully that I didn't understand? That would require something that I didn't have enough of at that time, which was faith. And it took until maybe... It might be until maybe this past year at some point was when I fully submitted to the idea that I couldn't do things in my own strength. You know, I'm someone who I would ask God for help, but I would do it. I would try to do it on my own, you know, and I, until this year, I don't think I truly accepted that, it, you know, that I was crucified with Christ. You know, that's a difference. That's a big difference. That, that the old creature that I was was actually gone along with my strength and that it was his strength working through me and uh, that was the biggest change and that allowed me to have it brought me from a from a situation of and here's how I'll, I'll, I'll outline this to give you a pretty good demonstration of the change that has been made in my life so we were talking about before the old book was called clues about ghosts. And when I initially said that this new book will be called the 13th ghost. And the reason being that there were 12 ghosts that were former lovers, maybe the most profound experiences with what I perceived to be love in my life. It made sense that the 13th ghost would be the next. 
And so I think a lot of people assumed that when I said that was the title, that it was that it was about uh, my recent ex at the time when I first started talking about the book. And that couldn't be further from the case. It's actually about me. I'm the 13th ghost. <laughs> you know, at least the man I was before is the 13th ghost. And accepting that, truly accepting that that part of me, you know, had to die. There's aspects of that that I'll always fight against. But, you know, I'm only able to do that through Christ. So that was, I would say that brings you up to date with where I'm at currently. I consider myself to be a servant of God. That's my role. And that is probably the highest honor that I could hope to achieve. And all I had to do was accept it. Everything else just kind of fell into place. Now, do you have a favorite preacher or a biblical commentator, you know, someone whose ideas really helped solidify your own faith, or was this more self-exploratory? That is to say, you just read and reflected, and the more you did so, the more you found yourself in line with a Christian lifestyle. It was a process. I believe that sanctification is always a process, and it's something that takes a lifetime, you know, to fully manifest. But there are changes that happen immediately. And to see the amount, just the sheer volume of immediate changes that happened to me within the last year leads me to question whether I was, <laughs> whether I was even, whether I could even count myself among the saved, whether I believed truly to that point. I would say that I was already saved. And, you know, certainly I led other people to Christ, but I also led others away. And, uh, I was wrong to do that. I could see the the influence I have was given to me from God. And I didn't use it the way I should have. But in terms of someone who's influenced me directly, as far as a preacher goes, my pastor, of course, influences me. I went through a season of just trying different churches in this area. I am, we kind of touched on this a minute ago here when we were talking, but I live in the middle of nowhere. I live, I have no family here. It's just me and my dog, you know. Uh, my girlfriend lives in another state. My church family is my family. I mean, that's, I love them. And my pastor, Pastor Buck. I remember when I was going through that season of trying different churches, I went from place to place. I tried a bunch of different types of churches. And I was looking for something. You know, I was looking for you're a believer, you know, I was looking for the Holy Spirit to guide me, to convict me that this is the place that I'm called. And I walked into a church. This was actually maybe the third or fourth I'd been to in the area. And it wasn't even a church per se, as you, as you might picture a church at that time. My church, Grace Life Church, which I'm a member of, was battling the COVID restrictions actively. They were not going to shut down and they didn't, they never shut down. They, uh, they moved around and did what they had to do to meet the requirements, including like preaching from the roof of the church with everybody in the parking lot, including preaching from the roof of a sporting goods store in the area with the bigger parking lot so everybody could park and distance correctly. We had service at the park in an amphitheater so that the worship team was able to still perform and do their stuff. We had drive through prayer at one point. So people could come through and just sort of fellowship and, and have people that cared about them pray, pray for them right there. And to 
see the way that, that God was working in that church, you know, convicted me, number one. But number two, I, I was introduced to a pastor who was not afraid to say the truth. And kind of like the quote we were talking about earlier, he was not concerned with what people would think. You know, he's, uh, he's truly a man that derives his identity from Christ. Nothing can come in the way of that. Nothing can affect that. And so as a result, we, uh, when I walked in there and I listened, the first time I listened to him preach, I wanted to go by myself first. And I did. And I listened to him preach. And some of the things he said might have been seen as slightly controversial. You know, I could see in, in certain settings people working with a spirit of offense. But it was the truth. It was the truth of the scripture. He just spoke about the promises with confidence and presented it in a way that didn't leave a lot of room for misinterpretation. He was very clear about it. And I, I said to myself, this is a man of God. And so I felt called to follow him and serve under him at my church where I'm at now. So I guess you could say in that way, his preaching influenced me. But I, I mean, I think at that point I was already... The seeds that had already long been sown. You said you go to a non-denominational church. And one thing I'm struck by as a Catholic, when I sometimes hear about Protestant services, is just how rapturous they are, you know, in comparison to, uh, to the ones that I attend. And, you know, there's a lot of fiery speech and people really get animated. You really are convinced that there is definitely, you know, the presence of the Holy Spirit is with uh, folks in those services. And... You know, sometimes I'll listen to people like Billy Graham. For example, last Sunday I went to Mass and pulled up to um, my apartment and, and just sort of sat there in the parking lot and wasn't really ready to go in, but just wanted to clear my head. And I just, you know, put on some Billy Graham from YouTube and just sort of, you know, sat there listening. And it's just amazing to hear how profound a lot of what he was saying. And it really struck me. You know, and it's similar to, you know, Ravi Zacharias. I know there's a whole scandal going on, but but if we can put that aside for a sec, you know, even his ministry as well just has really powerful sermons um, that are incredible. And, and I think it's also, for me at least, because I come from a more academic background, it can be a bit dusty and dry at times. People like Zacharias, as well as Billy Graham, really also have this intellectual edge to them. You know, if you read anything by Zacharias, you know, he's dropping philosophers, he's dropping historians. There's a lot of important intellectuals that he's referencing and critiquing and analyzing. And I just think that's incredible. Even with Billy Graham, too, I mean, just listening to some of his stuff, you know, he'll talk about, you know, Plato or he'll mention philosophers. And there is this sort of rich intellectual tradition. And I think for me, you know, coming from academia, it was those kinds of sermons that really brought me to Christ. I think, unfortunately, there is this, within sort of modern secular culture, let's say, within academia, which is really sort of sacrosanct, right, that position, everybody, myself included when I was there, everybody's just so massively depressed. You know, they all have these like sharp, you know, piercing critiques, but everybody's depressed. And I feel as though there is something about these thinkers, these writers that happily merge the two together, you know, both the intellectual critique, which, which I, I need, I crave, but moreover, I crave, you know, a Christian way of living as well. The existential dread, you know, that pretty much the entire secular world is carrying with them. I feel, sadly, a lot of Christians carry with them as well. And I did for a long time. 
<laughs> and uh, like, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with any particular sect or what have you. Uh, I was uh, I was a Baptist prior to where I am now. I was in I was part of a Baptist church, and um, it's a little bit more solemn and it's a little bit more in line with my natural personality. A little bit more quiet. Everybody's a little bit more. There's certainly we sing the old hymns and so forth, but it just it's not. It's not the spirit-driven, joyful experience that you were describing earlier, you know? And I, I, I felt disconnected from the Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. I felt, I believed in my heart that, that everything I read was true, but I didn't feel it. And um, I can tell you that what it took for me was submission, was voluntary submission, was to say that, okay, this is gonna be hard, and not, I, but I need to accept it, and then it, everything else won't be as difficult. And so I'm trying to think of a good way to describe to you exactly what I mean here. You asked preachers that influenced me, right? So the first thing I went into this with, so this is what I call people trying to make God in their own image. How I refer to this, what I was doing here, you know, like I'll do this, but like, you know. I'm not willing to change this about myself or, or there's no way God would want that, even though that's what it says, you know, negotiations and so forth. Right. And so as a result, I was judge, I was judgmental of other Christians. I was, uh, I was, I was judgmental of everyone. You know, I came to, I arrived to harsh, rash judgments about people that I had no business doing that and entire groups and including non-denominational churches, I have to say, like Elevation, for example, will be one that is a very popular church that for some reason, at first I thought, I had a feeling like, no, nah, that's not legit. They're making this into, into like a money-making scheme or something like that. Like all the production value, for some reason, reflected to me that the goal was to get as much capital as possible. And I can see that that was my own shortcoming and that was my own nature that I was projecting, you know, onto other people. And that's totally unfair. I think these more charismatic churches have something to offer. And in many cases, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's the fact that the, you can feel it. It's alive and well in there. Everyone in there loves each other. Everyone in there is full of joy, even when they're suffering. And it's a difficult thing to describe, but it's, it's made the biggest difference for me to understand that we have a need to connect with other people. As part of the human condition. We're not designed to do this alone. And so I accepted that. And I, I began to try to reverse my withdrawal from society where I just kind of like, you know, I've moved to the middle of nowhere. I have no social interaction to speak of except for people that I see when I go out to write, you know, that are working at the places where I write. And I don't have any conversations really with them. It's just like, hello, have a good day, you know. And I realized I had to change that. That was the first thing. Because while I did have a need to interact with other people and connect with them, what I was really looking for was something else. You know, I was trying to fill a God-shaped hole with random things that I thought would be best rather than accepting what, What's written? There's nothing can fill that void. There's no way other than God, other than Christ. And what 
I found to be odd was, what I found to be, well, it was surprising, was that God chooses to fill that hole, that God-shaped hole, with people. <laughs> you just can't choose it yourself. And by submitting to that, I can tell you all my needs are met, emotional, physical, spiritual. And, uh, you know, it led me, actually led me back to, this whole process has led me back to someone who I've loved all along that actually went through a similar situation while we were apart and drew near to, to God, to her faith. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful when you look at the fact that that never, this whole ordeal, the way things have come together for me, never could have happened in my own will. And I tried for sure. <laughs> like I did my very best to, to function in a way or to, to, to be able to accept that person or what have you. And oftentimes I think if we just submit to God, you realize that what he wants for you is not counter to what you want. You just have to do it his way. There's an order of operations to these things. You know, if you can believe that, if you can operate under the assumption that it's true, you'll see. I wasn't really willing to operate under any assumptions until recently, <laughs> until maybe the last year. Like, what if I consider all this is true? What if I look at it as absolutely true and more profound than I could ever hope to understand? But maybe I could scratch at the surface of it. And coming at it from, the, from that direction, things began to make sense. And then I could see clearly that there, there was proof. I just had to take that first step. I do feel that there's there's truth. I, I certainly feel that when you take a step towards God in faith, it takes two towards you. And it just takes that first step. For me, that was night and day. Not something that I discuss in depth frequently, but I mean, maybe I should do that more so. And I, I'm definitely willing to. You had this very interesting essay you had written on Facebook, and I believe you linked it to your Instagram account at one point. This is going back a few weeks. And a lot of what you're touching on now definitely resonates in this essay. So I'm wondering if you don't mind just reading the essay. It's not very long, and I think people would really find this interesting. It's a position statement essay, you know, because I get a lot of questions about my faith, believe it or not, certainly in private. And I'm, you know, I'm very forthcoming. But, and you know, I mean, it's not like it's a secret. It's right on my thing. It says servant of God right on my page. <laughs> It's not like I hide it, but I think people make their assumptions based on the way I look and what they think, what they've chosen to think about me based on uh, historical facts. But anyway, I'll read this essay quickly here. Though it has waned over the years, my fascination with strength development and peak performance has at its core always been about the simplicity of it, at least once the factors at play were well understood. Easily modified variables, consistently predictable outcomes. If only human behavior on the whole was as easily modified. Predictable, sure. Easily modified, not so much. I've long held close the idea or potential hope for something greater than myself I could lean on. Something that knows better than I do or makes sense of the things I cannot, the things I've dealt with. I studied scripture from a young age but at every turn, the experience itself led me closer to and then further again. From any reasonable expectation, I could take comfort in that former concept. 
a father inside of me, a meta-narrative of redemption. It was too much to swallow whole without picking it apart piece by piece. So I did that for decades. And I tried looking at things from the perspective that it was all true, that there was higher meaning to all of it. My eyes were open and I believed. This was the beginning of a new process that's never waned and I hope never will end. My current position is not one of bitterness toward my former self or certainty toward the current version. Rather, I'm no longer persuaded that humans are these intricately evolved soulless machines still functioning on primitive base instincts, modern skulls housing Stone Age mines. It seems to me that while some of these things hold true, we're more special than we would like to believe. We are talking monkeys, conditioned to hide or lie about most of our unacceptable behaviors. But we're not just that. We do better or worse jobs individually. We make better or worse decisions individually. We hurt or improve others more or less individually. All of this starts with a choice. Technology ends up snitching us out, but that does little to prevent recurrence of bad acting. Some of us embrace the shitty behaviors as rights and replace the question of whether or not we should do something with whether or not we're able. Parenthetically, this carries over well into training. Before we shake that last part off, we should take a second and self-assess. On one hand, instincts are innate and easily exploited. Songbird is programmed to sit on her pale blue and gray spotted eggs. Is it her fault that if we juxtapose her own eggs with day glow blue eggs, black polka dots, her instincts consistently drive her to try and sit on the exaggerated imposter egg, even when it's so large she falls off it again and again. This experiment's been repeated a good bit. She'll climb up on and fall off of the big, bright, exaggerated egg until her own babies perish just inches away like crack babies starving while their mother gets high in the next room. A gray lag goose will ignore its own egg and attempt to care for a freaking volleyball if it's painted the right color. Should she feel guilty? No. She's also an intricate but soulless machine. Just the way we act, she is. Just the way men will lie about how they feel for a woman to sleep with her, flatterers and panderers neglecting the needs of their own wives and children in an attempt to satisfy some selfish, obsolete instinct. And most women are no better. Male barn swallows generally have light brown chests, and females tend to choose mates with intense color there. This is somehow an indicator of fitness, like muscles. I think it was Nico Timbergen who figured out we can color in a previously rejected male's chest with a magic marker and every female will line up to mate with him. We know the same is true for men who take steroids and lift weights. It doesn't matter where the muscles came from or what they can do or any more than the chest color coming from a magic marker matters to the swallow. But we do pretend. And I know I harp on about these things. So why are humans any better? We don't behave as though we are. And I'm a firm believer that our behaviors are the clearest communication of our own beliefs. Certainly not our words. We do have huge brains, which evolved miraculously to be able to override stupid animal reflexes that might lead us astray.
However, we don't use our brains for that. We use them to develop technology to either stimulate satisfaction of these impulses or to make it easier to give into and be exploited by the stimulus they provide. The fact as a species, we still mostly behave to some degree like apes, that we consistently choose to cater to base impulse rather than sound logic and wisdom gives me pause. Where can we go from here? I know of only one path. And so what is the path? The path is that Christ is king. That's it. I truly believe with every ounce of my being that he is the way, the truth, and the light, and that no man will come to the Father except through him. That's the only way. I tend to not be so explicit so as to cause people to think for themselves. And I believe that if somebody's heart is open, they'll be moved. And they'll arrive at those conclusions on their own. There's sort of been this motif or theme I've been thinking about for months now, and it's mainly from something I read by this German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk, in a book he's written called You Must Change Your Life. And I think we, I might have mentioned this to you before. So what's interesting about it is that Sloterdijk says that when you look at theology or the evolution of theology, and religion in particular, all of it is really meant to pull you away from living a slovenly, self-deprecating existence. You know, it's like to leave the human being without the presence of a higher power is to kind of almost let them degrade themselves in all sorts of manners. And so I was struck when you wrote about, you know, base instincts that, yes, in many ways we are still animals, but we also have something within us that could certainly lead us to a much loftier path of principles, if you will. And sometimes I wonder, and this is really not meant to be judgmental, but, you know, sometimes the way that many lifters use social media to portray themselves as some sort of, you know, eternal badass or, you know, the whole I can do anything vibe they give off. I wonder if that's not exactly always a good thing. And I'll use myself as an example. Like the other day I was doing max effort deadlifts and squats. And just as I was getting under the bar, there was this, I don't know, flicker of good and evil. And the good side was like, okay, you know, breathe, focus, be thankful you're even able to do this to squat heavy and, you know, put in a good effort. But then there's the evil part that wants to conjure up all kinds of like dark thoughts to get me angry, you know, and then I'll be able to lift more effectively. Mm, yeah, it seems, it seems like that'll help, right? Yeah. And it seems like, unfortunately, the anger won out yesterday. And so I wonder, do you go through the same kind of thing? I'm happy to share my experience with that. And actually, it's funny because one of the things you mentioned before about training and how it influences my training, I would say training has been a source of my connection with God for a long time, even into prison, even prior to prison. I've been drawn toward dangerous things fearful things, things that would make most people scared. And that was what I always felt, for some reason, called towards those things, you know. And I'm not saying that everybody is, but that's what, that's why I, that's why I started and why I continue to return to lifting. And so when I lift, and essentially at any point throughout my career when I would lift, I would pray. <laughs> Even at the lowest and worst times, I was still secretly praying before each lift and that moment you're describing where you approach the bar and so forth. I learned on, I learned earlier on for me that 
if I was to approach it in that manner where I had to like draw from something dark to perform, that I felt as though it was performative, felt as though it was not, you know, I was manufacturing things to be upset about to draw a certain response. And it's dishonest. It feels dishonest to me. And so I, I feel what I've been doing since, and this part is something that's been a part of my deal for, it's been part of my training forever, is that as I prepare for a set or as I prepare to take a, a weight that could potentially be dangerous, I am typically praying. I have a, a sort of a mantra prayer in that time that I use to center myself, you know. I don't believe in just repetitious prayers with no meaning, but I do believe that, you know, focusing on a certain role is a type of meditation, you know? And so I would say I focus on the sovereign individuality of the person because that is probably, I feel, the defining characteristic of Christianity beyond the obvious. That is, that is one very important characteristic is that you are responsible for your own choice. And something I remind myself is there's one sweet. <laughs> That's it. And as far as what's attached to that, there's nothing attached to that. But I say it again and again to myself. There's one sweet. There's one sweet. And I pray. I pray for strength. I say strengthen me. There's one sweet. One sweet. <laughs> and this is it. That's what I'm supposed to do. It's what I feel called to do. So I remind myself that, you know, I'm fulfilling my role doing that not allowing myself to be afraid, you know, sort of believing that I am doing what I'm called to do. At that time, I mean, it was a type of therapy. I don't think I really am in a position where I need that type of therapy anymore. I still use it as an opportunity to pray, regardless of what's happening. What's, you know, there's other people around. I have training partners. There's different types of music playing, but that's where I'm at. That's, I return myself to that because otherwise I feel I feel like when I'm, I'm insecure about my identity if I can't do that. If I have to do this performative, getting myself angry or things to make me upset to react, I don't need that. You know, I just, I just ask God to strengthen me and he knows how to do that without, without being angry. You know, I look at myself as a useful tool that was perfectly formed for a task. And the, what I'm about to do is part of it. It might not be the central purpose of, uh, of the tool that I am, but it's one. It's part of it. It's part of the usefulness of it. Uh, it's allowed me to develop and reach a much larger audience. And as you noted earlier, it's a much larger audience of people that are sick and need a physician. You know? It's not people that are on the right path. And I, I shirked that responsibility for too long. And I, I did exactly what I talked about earlier. I was concerned for what other people would think. And that allowed me to have indecision. And that prevented me from doing what I was called to do. But no more. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. There is a certain, for me at least, superficial performativity, as you mentioned, that at times I think becomes a bit more apparent after the lift, right? So what happens when this performance, you know, building up this rage inside you, this anger inside you, 
this performance after the lift, you know, what happens when that's over? You know, are you back to your quote unquote, you know, pathetic, weak self? Did you accomplish some purpose? Even small, even small. Because if you don't link it to God, I don't believe you'll get that fulfillment. Yeah, and you know, I tend to forget at times that Christianity really is a religion not only of love, but that which really understands suffering. And I think for me, sometimes the challenge, maybe for others, but I'll speak for myself here, the challenge is how to thread love in those times of suffering. And not just with more, you know, grand examples like what happened to Job, right? The story of the rich man who has everything and when it's all taken away, he still remains steadfast and loving towards God. But there has to be a joy through suffering and in suffering. And of course, as lifters, we're always in want for an apt metaphor about, you know, the bar and suffering under it, I feel. Pick up your cross and follow after me. I mean, I don't know what better metaphor there could be than that. That's interesting what you were saying about Job. That is something that people go to all the time, like, oh, well. Why, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would do that to you as a game? And like, and there's there, there are all there are the typical pieces that get attacked in Scripture, and they get attacked with a very surface understanding. Oh, what kind of God would ask you to burn your son on the altar to sacrifice your son? You know, referring to Abraham. I think that a lot of people lose sight of the fact that it's the God that did that to his own son for you. We don't talk about that part. It's just, oh, well, that's a crazy thing. You accept that? You think that's what God wants? And it's like, well, you're looking at a fraction of a, a very large story that is an endlessly repeating <laughs> fractal from the beginning of Scripture to the end of it. And if you look at the entirety of the text and you have a mind that's capable of understanding what's happening within it, you understand that that's not something that humans are capable of doing. There's no way that we could... We could write a story over the course of at least 7,000 years, maybe 7 million years, depending how far you want to go, <laughs> maybe more. Who knows? But the point is countless lifetimes that predict and repeat the same message. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because in the essay, you talk about picking things apart piece by piece. And certainly that's a tendency, I think, of the so-called thinking man, right? I, I see to myself, it's, it's to look at things often in isolation, right? Devoid of the metaphor and illusion. And so I, I noticed in myself when I started to sort of self-catechize, one of my brothers in Christ, Adam, you know, he had stopped me, you know, from doing these. And he said, look, you have to understand that God is love. And once you do, with this thesis in mind, then go back and read the Bible from the beginning, and really, it's only then that you begin to realize that there are so many shades of love. You know, like to use the beat metaphor, there's tough love. There's compassionate brotherly love, you know, and so on. The modern conception of what love is is what gets in the way, I think, of that. Is that we have an idea of love that's not love. <laughs> Even, you know, so agape, obviously, that would be God, the God type of love, right? But I don't think it ends there. I think that any love... Anything that you're going to refer to as love, if it's not a manifestation of God, it's not love. God is love. So I get it. there's a lot of mis, you know, misdefining what is love. And for that reason, it's difficult to identify when we see it because we don't understand exactly what it is. And we also take a very, again, like you were saying, a very surface. We take little fractional pieces of things and 
make judgments based on those, but like, do we talk about the part that this story, like for example, to return to the story of Abraham was representational of something much greater. And God didn't make him kill his son, you know, actually provided even in that version, an acceptable sacrifice for him, the ram that was stuck in the thicket and yet unmarred. Was there just waiting it just happens to be you go up this mountain and you know everyone at the bottom's like hey where are you going like don't you need a sacrifice he's like no nah, we're just gonna go up here don't worry about it i got this you know <laughs> and uh he gets up there and you know he's getting ready to do it he's getting ready to do the deed and you know angel comes and says don't do that and the idea that he provided that perfect sacrifice and you know the unmarred ram that was there waiting at the altar and you know that's jesus christ we get away from that part it's like no one talks about that. You know, I always I hear people critique and no one even takes a moment to acknowledge that. If you've read Soren Kierkegaard's Either Or, he's a, a Danish philosopher in the 19th century, and he has his own story of Abraham. And what he does is he sort of takes different uh, repetitions of the sacrifice with different twists to the details. So, for example, one of them might be, what if Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac, right? What would have happened to the faith of Isaac or that of Abraham? And I think what these repetitions, these stories did for me, they really ramped up my faith because it made me question, what does it really mean to believe in the modern era? You know, to get away from sort of the scientism and the facticity of the Bible, like whether or not it was scientifically true, you know, about this or that fact of the Bible, and really get into the illusion and metaphor of the of the stories. And, you know, when we when we don't have the allegorical understanding, we end up missing, as you say, these incredible details that are there from the very beginning, for example, like with the ram and what that signifies and how they continue to course through the text well through the New Testament. When you read a book, right, and you get into it, you're committing to a novel. It's, it's going to be any commitment requires sacrifice. So if you're committing to a long novel, it's going to require a large amount of your time, right? So you're constantly assessing, certainly early on in the story, is this worth continuing to read? You know, and uh, I think what a lot of people do is they take it at face value and they're like, oh, this God's telling this guy to kill his kid. What? Like all these different things that, you know, when taken out of context, certainly would scare a lot of people off. Right. It almost like I could see a lot of people going like, ah, they just turn away from it. But it's so complex. And even if you read the whole thing beginning to end, you need to read the whole thing beginning to end a hundred times to begin to grasp the interconnected nature of everything within. It might even be an exercise, a useful exercise to think of the stories as like, it doesn't matter if those stories really happened. They did, but it doesn't matter if they did. Look at them from a purely representational standpoint. Look at them purely as parables. That's a good first step. I think <laughs> then things start to make a little more sense, you know? But if you're willing to do the exercise of assuming that this is all true, like forget what you know about life, because it's obviously not as much as, <laughs> as it could be, you know, for a minute, let's work with the axiom that this is all true, that every single thing within here is true. And that was what allowed me to put it together. That was when I first experienced revelation, which has never stopped from that point. Every time I touch scripture, something new is revealed to me. You know, the idea of like, for example, think of this, here's what is a concept that I've been playing with in my head this week. The idea of they're scared, you know, the disciples are scared. They wake up in the boat. It's a storm. They don't see Jesus with them. 
they see what looks like an apparition out on the sea. They think it's a ghost. Oh, it's a ghost. And Peter stands and says, you know, and of course Jesus tells him to relax, it's me. And I'm paraphrasing this whole scripture here, but this is the story. So he says, he stands and says, if it's you, Lord, bid me to come to thee. In other words, he's asking God, he's saying, tell me to step out of the boat. He's asking Jesus, tell me to step out of the boat, Lord, and, I, and I'll be able to walk to you. Like So in other words, it wasn't enough to see him do it. He had to do it too. And think about having the kind of passionate faith, the miraculous faith that could allow you to actually step on water and not fall. And he had that momentarily. When he began to fall, he said, help me. And he pulls him out. Jesus pulls him out. And he says, you have such a little faith. And just think about that for a minute. <laughs> My man just walked on water. Not far, but he walked on water. And he said, why did you doubt me? You had such little faith. And that's a, that's a little faith. That's what a little faith can do. And I think the message there is that they were so scared and so concerned. And the reason that he started to sink was he noticed the storm and focused on the storm instead of instead of on, on Christ. You know, and I think we all do that. I do that. That scripture speaks to me all day, every day now, where I think, and that's something I pray. I pray. I say, Lord, tell me to step off the boat like Peter did. That's all we have for today, guys. Join us again where we continue the conversation with Sweet Burns. Music by Robert Slump. For Scholars and Iron, this is Joe, signing off.